I'm Joshua Kagi from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 34 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Today, Reverend Dr. Susan Williams Smith, author of the new book, With Liberty and Justice for Some, The Bible, the Constitution, and Racism in America, joins the podcast for a conversation with Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas on how the two texts we count as sacred have not been merely impotent in eliminating racism. They have been used to support and sustain white supremacy, and what it will take to reclaim the transforming and affirming power of God and government to secure liberty and justice for all. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Reverend Dr. Susan Williams-Smith. Reverend Dr. Susan Williams-Smith formed a private nonprofit organization aimed at empowering urban youth all over the United States through improved literacy. Crazy Faith Ministries aims to worship through service. Her blog, Candid Observations, concentrates on the intersection of race, politics, and religion. She's the author of several books, including her latest, With Liberty and Justice for Some, The Bible, The Constitution, and Racism in America, published by Judson Press. Dr. Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. With Liberty and Justice for Some, why this book now? You know, I have been puzzled uh, for the longest time about how there could be such a powerful document as the Constitution and such a powerful book as the Bible, and there still be so much racism. I mean, I concentrate on racism because I'm an African-American woman, but all of the isms, really, because the Constitution clearly makes the case, well, maybe they didn't mean to, but the wording makes it seem to many people that liberty and justice is for all people who are American. And of course, when you study, you realize that that was not the case, but that's how we take it. Um, and in the 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 Bible, the Christian Bible, it's um, the the words of Jesus the Christ with the great commandment, which is what Christianity is is based on. It's, it's like you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Those words to me are life giving, transformative, directive, and all of that. Um, and yet, in spite of these two, I call them America's two sacred documents. In spite of these documents. Racism and sexism and all that stuff is all over the place. And so um, it, it bothers me. It bothers me. I grew up in a house where um, my mother was one that like drummed the theology of Jesus into all of us. There were five of us. And, you know, that loving your neighbor thing, you know, was a tough one. And um, but she said, we are called to love people no matter what. And if people are going to get in trouble for what they do, that's God's thing. That's not for you to do. You're supposed to love them. Um, life-giving, maybe, because it keeps you from, because you're concentrating so hard on how to love somebody that you can't stand that you don't have time not to stand them. You know what I'm saying? You don't have time because you're worried about your relationship with God. That was the, 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 the thing that my mother gave us. But when I looked around and I saw, and I thought, well, how come we're the only ones that have to do what Jesus says? You know, that was my question as a young kid. So I have, I have struggled with it for the longest time. And now... It just seems like as everything is just welling up, you know, it's like it's been a slow boil or a slow bubbling underneath the surface of America for the longest time, just bubbling and bubbling and bubbling. And, 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 and it just has now it's bubbled up to the top. It's, it's all over the place. And people are 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 
are coming out with this blatant uh, racism. And even while they wave American flags, I feel like it's a disregard and a disrespect of and for the United States Constitution. So I just thought, let me write some of it down because it's it it bothers me. It just really bothers me. Your book uh, begins at the beginning with the creation accounts in Genesis and the Gospel of John. Why did you start there? Because to me, again, um, um, although I'm not a literalist, I don't take everything, you know, and the Bible was literal. The story of creation is a real good way for people to understand, I guess, theologically, how people came how not just people, but everything came into being. And and to me, the story and the creation stories in Genesis and then, you know, the words of John in the beginning, the word when the word was God and the word was with God, that just sets up the sovereignty of God for me. So to me, it's not something that's debatable. To me, because of those words, it sets the position, the power, the character, all of that of God. And it sets God up as the one who did, in fact, create everything and everyone. And if God created everyone, then everyone is loved by God. And no one then should hate what God has created. That's why I started there. You write about your early experience of racism and learning uh that racism was something that you would have to deal with your whole life. But you also had this hope uh, that because the Bible and the Constitution existed, um, no matter how bad racism was, you were protected and loved by God and others. Um, When did that perception or understanding begin to change for you? Uh, I don't know. I'm assuming you were young. Uh, <laughs> I absolutely was because by the by the, by the time I was in high school and um, I went to a high school in Detroit where you know it, it was a high school where you had to be invited so there were a bunch of white kids in there that um, from all over the the I guess the county of, of where I live Wayne County and um, I would sit in those classes and I I remember this one girl I even remember her name Nancy Shelton was her name super super smart and she said you cannot um, legislate the hearts of people and I thought oh that's that's good she we were talking about racism she can't you can't legislate it and I had never heard that before I guess I thought up to that point that laws would 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 kick in but when I listened to her and, and she and she just put it like it's it's not a matter of law, although law helps to keep people down and discriminate. It's a matter of the heart. And so um, and then so that stuck with me. And then when I went to college, I guess this is where it was cemented. This is where I actually got angry because it was sitting, I was sitting in a class in, in freshman year of college and some we were talking, I was probably a sociology class, one of those intro classes where there's 400,000 people in the room and we were um, in one of the breakout sessions or one of the whatever, you know, the study groups. And um, these people, these kids were talking about how they, they had all these bad impressions and opinions about black people, but to to a, to a person, none of them had ever known a black person. And that just ticked me off. I just thought, how in the world can you, and, and their experience was so different than mine, you know, because if you're any type of non-white person, you have to know white people. You have to interact with white people. It, again, it didn't it didn't hit me that a group of people could be so isolated within this 
this pluralistic country that they could be so isolated that they had never even known a black person. It made me angry. I think that's when everything just said, okay, this is a whole different, this is a whole different game um, that I have to, I have to begin to understand. My mother had grown up in the South. She never really talked about a whole lot, what she had gone through, just little bits and pieces. I have found in my work that a lot of times um, black people who have gone through the trauma of racism don't talk about it much because it's too painful. But um, I remember when I um, just kind of began to struggle with that and wrestle with it, my mom would say, oh, yeah, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn. So. That, uh, that quote that you referenced uh, from your student reminds me of something Dr. King said. I think he was speaking at um, UCLA shortly after the Selma march, which of course led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And he said, uh, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And he went on to say, though the law may not change hearts, it does change habits. But that's not entirely true, is it? I mean, the law cannot compel love, but it also often fails to constrain evil. I mean, we see that today. Yeah, we do. People just stop. If you think about people who talk about law and order, um, so many of them are breaking the law and causing disorder while they're talking about law and order. Um, so then the law, which you want to depend on, you want to depend on something, the law becomes um, very hard to believe in. Brian Stevenson, you know, who's the executive director of the Equal Justice he said it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. Um, the law uh, works for you, I think, if you have money. Because it seems what the law is about is about knowing how to manipulate the system. The law is not about justice for the most part. And so and so that then when I talked to Diane Nash, when I was doing some interviews um, for an, another work I'm doing, um, she said the police did not protect us. I just read this, the, uh, uh, a book uh, about the, 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 the burning of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it's just you just see how law people have participated in the injustice meted out against black people, women, you know, anybody that they want to. They have done it and they have gotten away with it. And so the law has not been successful. You know, I don't think there's been an anti-lynching bill passed yet. I think there have been, you know, conversations for years. I mean, ever since Ida B. Wells, but um, they haven't passed it. Many people think that the law you know, uh, making desegregation of schools was wrong. So if you as a person cannot depend on the law, I mean, where do you go? You're just like in deep water and you're like treading water forever. And so you, you tread to keep your head above water, but you don't ever see the, the shore. Or when you see the shore, then a big wave comes and pushes you back like we're going through now with all the stuff that's going on in our government right now. And you, you know, you just never stop treading water. In his uh, review of the book, Dr. Marvin McMickle asks the question, how can white Christians who read the same Bible as black Christians allow for and justify the physical enslavement and economic exploitation of their fellow believers? How, how, how do you wrestle with that? How do you answer that question? Well, that's why one of the reasons I, I, I need to write it down because actually I came to a conclusion, Curtis, I came to a conclusion that we are not a monotheistic uh, 
country, maybe not a monotheistic world. There are at least two gods, a God for white people, a God for black people, or you can say a God for the powerful, a God for the non-powerful. Um, because the God that um, that African-Americans and, and different people, oppressed people of different groups worship is a God that yearns for justice for everybody, where the God of the powerful is a God who believes in the just the justice of seeking power and money and and stepping all over and on the masses in order to get money and power and to keep money and power. So in my mind, one of the reasons I said I've got to write this down is because I thought you read all the stories of the, where there were lynchings of people and there were out, you know, people were out, it was like a big, you know, gathering and they took pictures and it was like holiday and they had balloons and, and all that. They just had just a wonderful time. And in the groups of people who were there especially Spectators, as I read, I saw that there were many ministers and, of course, the sheriffs and the DAs and all that. And then this is what got me, that uh, many of those people who had either physically participated in the lynching or had stood on the sidelines as a Christian, had stood on the sidelines and watched it and laughed and take, took pictures and had a picnic lunch, went to church the next day. They called themselves Christians and they went to church the next day. And 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 I and my sentence that just just got me going is that they get lynch on a Saturday night and go to church on a Sunday morning and a three piece suit and serve Holy Communion. That's not my God. And so I had to I had to I had to I had to, you know, wrestle with it. And I'm sure people will say yeah, that's blasphemous. But I think it's truth. I think that it's truth. I, the God that, that I worship is a God of justice. And, and I have to have it. People have to have that, especially if you don't have the law on your side. You got to feel like somewhere there is an entity that hears you, knows you, loves you, accepts you, values you. And it's not the God of the rich and powerful, which in this country so often turns out to be white. You write that the Bible and the Constitution have been powerless to end racism in our and society. I, yeah, and I think they're powerless because we the people make them powerless. We make some decisions. Peter Gomes said that the problem is not with the Bible, the, the problem is that it's with the interpretation of. So when um, the, the late Senator Robert Byrd was approached by, and this is in the book, but the, the late, late Senator Byrd was approached by a reporter, because, you know, he was a segregationist, you know, and, and the guy said, well, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. And that's a whole other conversation. But the guy said, um, well, don't you know that? What do you think about the, the the parable of the Good Samaritan, or do you know the parable? Yes, of course I do. Every everybody who's a who's a Christian knows that story. And so the the reporter said, "Well, what do you think about the the commandment that you should love your neighbor as yourself?" He said, "Well, I certainly believe in it, but I get to choose my neighbor." Okay, well, that's a different type of Christianity. That is a different kind because in in my house. Everybody was your neighbor because God made everybody. You, know, you don't have to, you know, love them and go out to dinner with them. You don't have to, you know, have them over to your house. But you have to honor them as a human being. You have to listen to them. You got all of that because they have to do the same for you. But uh, Senator Byrd and many people who believe like that think, oh no, I can do this. And you know, so you see it in, in the way the Bible has been used historically, which is what I tried to bring out in the book too. The Bible has been used historically to justify everything that they are doing. So th that whole um, 
that that whole difference in theological, Christological, you know, understanding based on our uh, ability um, to interpret and our right to interpret, I guess, has diminished the power, the, the, the inherent power of both the Bible and the Constitution. We dilute it with our own interpretive abilities and, cap- and capacities. And when you add uh, money and power to that, you add also the possibility of, of separating and isolating yourself from your neighbor. Absolutely, and you have to do it. You know, our American right. individualism is probably based a lot on that because you have to do you have to do what you have to do in order to get your money and keep your money. That is it. That's called the religion of empire. And you know, and you study and you th- you think about you know the, how Christianity evolved under uh, Constantine and all that. But it became the, the 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 religion or Christianity became a tool of the government of the empire of the mighty. And, and when that happened, uh, Barry Friesen writes that um, that the, the Christianity that existed by the time of the Roman Empire or after the Roman Empire totally inverted the, the Christianity of Jesus the Christ. Jesus himself would not have recognized it. That's sad. Yeah. So you, you write that in this country, we have at least two groups of people who have radically different experiences that, that are embrace both texts, the Bible and the Constitution. They have different experiences, different cultures, worldviews. And as long as that cultural divide remains, you argue, the clash between those two will not end. So I guess my question is, what hope do you have uh, that that cultural divide can be bridged? And what do you think it will take to do that? Uh, there is such a thing as um, believing in, in truth and believing in in the wisdom of God as making having made all people human beings. There's a group called Rednecks for Black Lives, which I think is delightful. A group of white people who grew up rapidly racist. Uh, but who had something inside of them that wanted to search out some of the things they had been taught. And as they learned them, they realized that they had been misdirected. And so one of the things that I I, I believe in doing is, is, is sharing the stories because so many people, white people and black people, uh, don't know the stories. They don't know the stories of oppression. They, they don't know the stories of how, you know, powerful white people did uh, other people. They don't know. I, I'm surprised how people didn't know about the Trail of Tears, for instance. I didn't learn about the Trail of Tears when I was in school. The Indians were just the bad people. <laughs> you know, that's what we learned. Um, we we did not learn of the suffering um, put upon uh, non-white people by white people in power, white religious people in power. And I think what happens, Curtis, is when you tell the story, you don't confront, you just tell the stories and encourage people to, you know, if they're interested in the stories, to look stuff up themselves so they cannot, you know, accuse you of trying to stuff something down their throat. I think that um, the sharing of the history, the sharing of the stories has a power of its own. So, for instance, a couple of days ago, I I, I just put a sentence um, on my Facebook page about the, the burning in Tulsa. And so many people said, I'd never heard about that. 
Or I tell the story sometimes when I do presentations about little Ruby Bridges, that little six-year-old girl who like integrated the schools and how she was so um, excited. And she had on her little first day of school dress and she had her little shoes and ribbons in her hair and her little book bag. And when she was walking up to the schools, all these people yelling and screaming and she could see their faces and they were filled with something, but she thought maybe it was Mardi Gras. She, I mean, that's her, her little girl's mind. And then she goes into that classroom and she sits in that classroom for a whole year by herself. So depressed that um, later on when they were cleaning out the room, they found uh, her lunches. She wouldn't eat her lunch because she was forced to eat by, her, by herself in that room. So she would take those lunches and put them in a file cabinet. Well, this is what I know about this God that I believe was sovereign and created us all. God put every in, into every single soul the, com, the the capacity for compassion. And when people hear things that they did not know, that they did not realize because they were not taught, that has a power of its own. And so I seek to um, to tell the stories and to um, ask people to, you know, listen to the stories. And because it's more than a safe conversation about race, I think those are perfectly impotent. I just think people just, you know, rabble off just rabble. But when you tell life stories of what people have gone through and people who have never heard that stuff before, that that opened, that hits something in their spirits. And I think that's how, that's the hope. That's the hope that you just tell the story and then let people deal with it. You, you note in the book that you're not a historian, but you are a student of history. Um, how does that uh, study of history, and I think you're, you're getting at here, you're sharing some of it here, but how does that inform your work with, with youth today, with Crazy Faith Ministries? Again, I, I work to tell them um, because, because of the, the, um, the, the dedicated effort to keep you know, whites and blacks, you know, separated and all, all that kind of stuff. Black people uh, struggle with self-hatred. You know, we are taught to hate ourselves. We are taught all of the negative things. What what the white culture believes about us, we believe about ourselves for the most part. And the only way to dispel that is to begin to teach to our children what they don't know as well. So, for instance, um, one of the things I like, uh, Marion Wright Edelman, who's now um, resigned as executive director of the Children's Defense Fund, but that whole Freedom School thing to me is like a, a work of genius because you take little kids who have, you know, been, many of them don't have um, parents who have time to read to them and with them and all that kind of stuff. And then they go in schools and they're put down and categorized and all that kind of stuff. And then in freedom school, the whole concept and the curriculum is constructed in such a way that these little kids um, are given the chance to see who they are. And, and, and they don't have to compare themselves because of the way the reading is taught. They don't have to compare themselves to anybody else. They are allowed to kind of progress at their own rate and learn at the same time. So they're given books that, that they can relate to that have pictures and of, of kids that look like them and, and and situations that are parallel to what they're going through. And that's life-giving. And so that's what we try to do. We just try to give the kids um, pieces of themselves that they've missed, that they've never, maybe they missed or they never even were close to them. That's what we try to do. And it makes a difference. When you see a little kid's eyes light up because they now realize that they can read, you know, a word that they couldn't read a week ago, that is worth its weight in gold. You can then begin to challenge the opinions about black people that these little kids have heard already. 
Dr. Smith, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. I haven't been talking to you about it. Thank you. The book is With Liberty and Justice for Some, The Bible, the Constitution, and Racism in America. It's available at judsonpress.org or wherever you buy books. Thank you to this week's guest, Reverend Dr. Susan Williams-Smith. Our theme music is Believable Too by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett and Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMickle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, ChristianCitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. We'll be back with a new episode later this week. Thanks for listening.